that the Holy Spirit wants to see here an environment or a culture or a local church where he is free to distribute the gifts of leadership according to Romans 12.8 and that he is free to distribute those gifts to both men and both to women. That both men and women should be open to receive the gifts of leadership, the gift of leadership, and should be celebrated publicly for that gift. And that the gifts get to operate in a local church, first of all, because they're a gift, that leadership is actually a gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, It's also something that Holy Spirit calls people to exercise. It's based on a call of God, that he gives a gift and he gives a calling to uh, particular leadership in the church and that that leadership gets expressed through um, godly character, that godly character is absolutely vitally important and godly character looks like things like this in the local church, it looks like sacrifice, it looks like servanthood, it looks like the capacity to have self-control that a person is able to tell themselves what to do and they obey themselves, which is a really important thing before they um, exercise authority for people. Um, It's about faithfulness and consistency. And it's also about something that we were calling resilience, Um, that with leadership comes um, privilege and also pressure. And it's a little bit like if you think of a can of Coke, a can of Pepsi. If it's full, you try and squeeze that can, you can't crush it. But you drink the contents of that can, it's really easy to crush. And so leadership is about having a life in God. It's about having a well in God. It's about drawing on the life in God and then that life overflowing to other people. And this week... We're going to specifically spend all of our time in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to look at the original design of how men and women work together. And obviously, there's a sense in which Genesis 1 and 2 is very much about a marriage relationship, but it's also very much about a commissioning of male and female, to work together, to cultivate, to subdue, and to rule together, and to extend Eden. We're also going to talk very briefly about how sin and the disobedience to a clear command of God, how sin disrupted things and shattered the harmony of that relationship. And we're going to look at something of how Christ, the cross of Christ, deals with the curse and the dysfunction that was established between men and women through sin. So everybody you read about, and we've read loads of books on the topic, and we'd love to give you the bibliography so you can read some of those yourself. We also summarised all those books into a paper so we could do the work for people. If you're really interested in reading that paper, it's 20 pages, it takes about half an hour to read. Put your email in the box along with your questions, we'll happily send that out to you. So if you're a person, and these names are not actually necessarily biblical names, but they're the kind of categories of thought around the subject of men, women and the church. 
If you're a kind of within the complementarian camp, which is men and women are both made in the image of God, but essentially man is always the leader and the woman is always the follower, they justify that perspective going back to Genesis 1, 2 and 3. If you're what is called an egalitarian which is that sense of actually all the roles and leadership are open to men and women, only on the basis of calling, character, gifting. They also base it on Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so we're going to unpack 1, 2, and 3, um, doing our best to explain why we believe that all the gifts are actually open to both men and both women. All of them all thinkers go back to what was God's original intention at creation. All of them go back to what was God's original calling upon men and women when he created them. And it's clear that if you read Genesis 1, 2 and 3, that both men and women are very good. And that both men and women were made in the image of God. That in Genesis 1, 28, it says, or 27, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over. Actually, this is the only mention of ruling over before the fall. Ruling over who? The fish, the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said to them, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And so God calls man and woman to obviously this multiplication role together, and this fruitful role together. But he also jointly commissions them together to have this ruling role and this subduing role. That it wasn't just man and woman, biologically different, you're going to multiply. But there's something about partnership and mutuality of also ruling and subduing together. That both men and women were called together and a part to live in the image of the one they were created in. That both equally are reflecting the reality that they're created in the image of God. And there's something here of a unity in the beginning and a powerful sense of diversity in the beginning that they are different and they both reflect the glory in a very unique way, but there's a unity between them and an authority they both have to do a job of reflecting God and extending Eden. Now, a faulty view of the Trinity will impact and spoil every relationship. Or as Pete Carter would say, if you argue for hierarchy in the Trinity, then you will argue for hierarchy in every human relationship on the planet. And in a small amount of time, I haven't got time to go deep into every topic, but what I want to do is just read a little bit from the paper that we wrote, which will signal a few things. 
about the Trinity. There is no subordination in the Trinity, as they are all of the same essence and the same nature. Thinking that this kind of subordination exists would imply that the Father is the one with authority and the Son only submits to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son with greater or lower level of authority. There becomes inequality and a ladder of authority in the Trinity. In fact, when you have seen the Son, Jesus, you have seen the Father. What we see in the Son is the same essence that's in the Father. God became flesh. The Father is not in any means different. He doesn't have a tyrannical darker side that the Son must somehow placate and appease. The Father is loving, serving and sacrificial too. However, the triune God voluntarily submits to each other, respecting the roles and activities they perform. The Father sent the Son. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus and proceeds from the Father. The Trinity is not a vertical hierarchical chain, but a circle of other giving love. Some people say the Trinity dances in a circle. So, if we believe the hierarchy in the Trinity, it's then easy to argue that we believe in hierarchy between a man and a woman in a marriage or in leadership within a local church. So we read in Genesis 1.28 that both were given instructions, not just to multiply and not just about fruitfulness. They had a subduing and ruling together to lead, to influence, to transform. And it's clear as the story goes on, they have a fundamental need of the partnership in order to fill the commission, calling and mandate of heaven. It's clear that they cannot represent God and extend Eden without one another. That becomes a very clear thing as the story progresses. So Genesis 1 and 2 really is about the sameness of men and women, that they are both reflecting his nature, that Eve is called to rule with Adam. There's no mention that Eve is called to follow and to serve Adam as he rules. There's no explicit command that says, Adam, rule and subdue. Eve, I'm going to define helper, which we'll come to in a moment, as coming alongside and serving and following him as he rules. There's this clear sense of we're together in this, that both are 100% entitled to reflect and represent God. And so Genesis 1 and 2 outlines the ideal and the perfect partnership and relationship between men and women. And 
they are both contributing something beautiful and something wonderfully unique in their reflecting of the glory of God. And they are both reflecting and contributing something wonderfully unique in this equality of partnership together to extend Edom. So there's not uniformity. There's not the removing of distinctions, but diversity of expression. It says in chapter 2 and verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. They become one flesh. Adam seems to have this clear responsibility to, to promote in the couple that sense of unity. But there's no explicit command for Adam to express this calling of servanthood and guarding unity. There's no expressive command that says that to guard unity means to express and exercise authority over. That authority over people always tends to separate people. Always. Anytime there's authority over people, it always leads to separation and not <coughs> unity. And Eve's unique contribution is this word helper. This word helper. So in 2.18 it says, and the, on 2.16 it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any... F- any uh, eat from any tree in the garden, but you must, must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So Adam gets this explicit command about, about what he can and what he can't do. And then immediately after being given that command, God says, the Lord God said, it is not good for you to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And so there's a sense that he's given this, um, this command, but immediately there's a statement of, actually, this is not just about subduing and ruling. If you're going to keep the command, you're going to need a helper alongside you that together you can keep the command. It's not good for you to be alone. And so the context of Eve's description as Adam's helper occurs immediately after God instructs Adam about the tree. Helper is not a word for subordinate. Helper is not a word for deputy. Helper is not a word for assistant. Helper in Hebrew is most often describing God. And God is never our subordinate. He's never our assistant. He's never our deputy. Rather, helper is used by God to describe someone in need being given strength by someone who has capacities, insights, abilities that is different from the one who is in need. And there's a sense of God saying to Adam, you've got this huge commission, you've got this huge calling, you've got this amazing command, it's not good for you to be alone. I'm bringing someone alongside you who's going to be with you, partner, shoulder to shoulder, not under you, with you ruling over, but together in partnership to both obey me 
and to do what I've called you to do. So this is part of her helping the command, not just to cultivate the earth, but to keep the command. And so Adam rules as a male image bearer of God. Eve rules as a female image bearer of God, both equal. And we said last week that Genesis 1 is like creation from 20,000 feet, and then Genesis 2 zooms into the details. Now, some people argue, they say, women are always a helper as a follower, an assistant, and a subordinate because of creation order. They say that the, that the fact that Adam was created first always makes Adam the boss. That's not always true in scripture. Joseph was not created or born first and he becomes the ruler of his brothers. Esau was, um, Jacob was born after Esau and becomes the ruler. Ishmael was born first, but Isaac is predominant. So first is not always meaning over. And someone jokingly said, and I know it's a joke, maybe then fish are the boss. <laughs> I mean, you, you could argue that if you wanted to. So, why were man and woman created in two separate stages? What was God trying to show Adam about Eve? And what was God showing Eve about Adam? And the argument I find to be most satisfactorily, is that they were created sequentially, or one after the other, to underline the need that men have for women and the need that women have for men. And that creation order did not create a hierarchy between people. It said it's not good for man to be alone, that they need one another. That Nate, some people say that Adam clearly has more authority because he named the animals. That the naming of animals was a demonstration that Adam had, a, had authority over Eve and over creation that Eve didn't have. That's one argument. That somehow naming animals was him ex- exercising his unique and special authority. It's probably more clear from the context that it was more of a helper-finding mission. And it says in 19, it says in 18, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. And it says he brought them to man, to the man, to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called them, called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Then it says in verse 20, But for Adam, no suitable helper was to be found. It's not good to be alone. He names the animals. Now, not one suitable helper could be found. It's like God is bringing creation before him. And my friend Jonathan said he may have brought them up in pairs. 
And maybe he saw in the pairs, well, they're like one another. They're like of the same substance. They look the same. They're the same type. And Adam looked and couldn't find anything in all of creation that was a suitable helper. And then after he realises there's no suitable helper, so the Lord God called the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with the flesh then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought it her to the man and he said now that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man he sees a suitable helper and he exclaims there's now I'm not alone there's someone just like me of the same substance he needed someone just like him he needed someone of the same substance he needed someone who was like two sides of the sides of the same coin someone just like me and so the narrative of genesis is really as somebody said if you want to understand what's a narrative is telling you, look at what's repeated. That the fundamental narrative of Genesis is you've got a commission from God, you've got a unity of partnership between a man and a woman, but you've also got a command to obey and you've got a serpent who is cunning and deceptive and looking to deceive them. So the fundamental narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 is will man and woman obey God and trust God? Or will man and woman rebel and fall for the deception to be um, like God in a way that God hadn't intended, which was to know the knowledge of good and evil? That's the, the tension that's set up. Will they obey God or will they obey themselves? And we know what happens is Eve is deceived, Adam is next to her, he is deceived and then comes into the relationship with men and women uh, a curse and it says in verse 16 your of chapter 3 your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you he will have authority over you so remember, the only time authority has been described as over anything, it's over the earth, it's over the fish, it's over the sea, and it's over the animals that crawl along the ground. The first introduction of the idea of hierarchy, boss, servitude, and following, and domination comes as a direct result of their sin and lack of obedience to God. And so the purity of walking alongside one another is polluted by rebellion and is polluted by sin and by their poor choices. So life will now be lived on planet Earth in, until Christ in terms of someone will be the boss, someone will dominate and, so, and, and a man will rule over and women will have this desire to have what man has. So that's going to be the tension. Men will dominate because of their superior strength, physical strength on the most part, and women will long and desire to have that 
thing that man has to have that top spot in the hierarchy is going to be a struggle and a wrestling. And so sin doesn't just distort hierarchical leadership. It introduces a whole new authority structure. It's not just that God had established man to lead and woman to follow and not this sense of partnership and that sin had just slightly distorted it. It actually introduced a whole new way of relating and behaving to one another. So the fool brings corruption. The fool brings suspicion. The fool brings isolation. Sin introduces a loss of harmony in the relationship and the partnership. The, 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 the fool and sin brought a transition from ruling alongside one another to someone ruling over the other. That men and women are no longer after the fool on the same footing. Instead, there is the introduction of man ruling over and women's desire to have what men have. And so sometimes what we find ourselves with when we build hierarchical structures or, or a decision that says um, only men who have gifting, calling, competency and character can be leaders in a local church, what we can actually find ourselves is building a structure, building a culture, building an environment that is trying to manage the curse between men and women. We can actually find ourselves building something because there is a tension between genders, between men and women, so we can build a structure that somehow guards against what we feel is the brokenness of Genesis 3. A structure that protects the church from the implications of the fall. That's what we can find ourselves doing. Whereas Christ took the curse. And actually Jesus took the curse. And one of the curses was this hierarchical structure of dominating and desire for. Galatians 3.28 is talking about Christ has done something fundamental on the cross that transforms the way that men and women can now relate to one another. So there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is neither, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So something happened on the cross that was so fundamental that it wasn't just the breaking of the issue of man and woman's relationship to God, it actually did something between every single category of humanity. So Galatians 3.28 is saying, through Christ, all are equally advantaged and all are equally disadvantaged. In other words, if you're out there and you are a slave owner... You have this huge advantage of economy and power. And if you're a slave, you would feel, I've got no ownership or rights. But when you come into Christ and you come into the church, whatever's going on out there 
is saying, no, everybody's equally advantaged and everyone is equally disadvantaged. It's new creation reality. So the categories change of, you could say, we're, if you were a Jewish believer in the first century, you would think, you know, we've got all the advantages because we've got the prophets, we've got the heritage, we've got the culture, we've got the history. And Paul is saying there is no Jew or Gentile. He's breaking every form of category between people. He's saying that before God, everybody is completely equal. And as one person said, it it can't just be that something that is before God has no social lived out implications. That this thing is breaking out in the early church. It's beginning to break out. So you're getting the likes, as we saw last week, of Priscilla, a woman, teaching Apollos the way more clearly. You're seeing the Joel free prophecy, Joel prophecy talked about in Acts 2, that it's not just men who are going to prophesy, men and women are going to prophesy. The Holy Spirit's going to fall on both men and women. You're seeing something break out. You're seeing Junior, who's esteemed among the apostles in Romans 16. You're seeing someone um, like Phoebe, given the responsibility to take the book of Romans to Rome and the person who took the book would have given an explanation of the book. Were there any questions? You're seeing breakout and the beginning of breakout all over. Rochelle, next week we'll look at trajectory, but you see beginnings of mini breakouts in the Old Testament. Deborah, the, 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 the judge who has responsibility for the economy and the spiritual and the governmental stuff within a, within a nation. You're seeing it with Job's daughters at the end of the book of Job. They all equally inherit. You're seeing breakouts. You're seeing transformation. You're seeing change. Husbands love your wives. That's a radical, radical, revolutionary statement that begins to break out in the New Testament when women were powerless. The woman at the well had been divorced many times because men had divorced her. She had no legal capacity to divorce anybody. She had been rejected and divorced multiple times. And you see this radical beginning with Jesus of Mary sitting at his feet and being apprenticed and taught in a culture that said, the worst thing you can be born as is a woman. That was Jewish thinking of the day. And Jesus is not saying, no, she's chosen something good. I'm teaching her. I'm apprenticing her. I'm readying her because she's going to do the stuff that I've been doing. And so you see these breakouts in the New Testament and you see, often Paul is very silent on, an ob- on a subject, like on slavery. He doesn't say a huge amount, but he says, slaves obey your, your masters. And then suddenly in Philemon, he's talking about a slave being set free. He's talking about the equality that's been established between Christ, because of Christ. There is no now um, slave or owner. And so the summary would then be that when, and we will look at this with the Q&A, in the, in, the, in the certain texts when Paul, for example, says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, we have to drill down and ask, what was the social context in which that prohibition was being written to that particular church? And it's even interesting in that particular thing, I do not permit 
a woman to have authority. That Paul only uses that particular phrase about authority in, in that place and a couple of other places. That word authoritan, authority is authoritain, which is I do not permit a woman to have harsh, domineering, controlling, belittling authority over a man. That Paul uses a very specific word about authority because he's talking about something very, very specific. In most passages, when you see a prohibition, for example, I do not permit a woman to speak in church. We, we know that as a cultural context addressing something that is going on in that specific moment, not a prohibition for all times and all cultures and all places. That it's because women who had historically not been educated were chattering in church and men and women sat in different places. And so Paul is saying, this is not the context for chattering and talking. Ask your questions at home. It's clearly not a prohibition. Philip has four daughters who prophesy. The spirit is poured out on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Priscilla teaches Apollos the way more clearly. We have to look at the context. And so in most passages, there is also a cultural backdrop to understand. So in both Corinth and Ephesus, where Paul is writing to say to Timothy, the Greek ancient world worshipped the god, goddess Artemis the goddess of hunting and wilderness and the protector of unmarried girls. Diana's, the Latinized version of Artemis, was the seat of worship, was the temple based in Ephesus. She was considered as Mother Earth, the life-giving deity. So in this particular religious cult, women were seen to be superior to men. It was like the Genesis free curse. They had created a religion that enabled them to, do, to have and grasp and desire what belonged to men. This affects the context in which the letters were written, one by which women dominated men. Paul is therefore correcting the false teaching that women are superior to men and speaking into the issues arising from the fall of Genesis 3. What we're saying in all of this is his Holy Spirit is utterly free to give gifts and anointings to both men and women to serve the body in humility, not authority over anyone, but pouring out who they are in their particular gift in order that the body might grow up into maturity and do the work of service for one another. I honestly believe there's something about the beauty of new creation reality and unity and diversity and working alongside one another in mutuality that is a reflection of the way the Trinity operates. And I really believe that there's a journey towards that to grow into that kind of mutual submission that kind of government of humility, of servanthood, that kind of government that's saying no one's building an empire, we're reflecting glory to Christ, where gifts are submitted to one another, that a man submits to a woman in her calling and gifting, and a woman submits to a man in terms of calling and gifting, 